Welcome to the Hammer and Quill, a Bonhoeffer House podcast exploring the good, true, and beautiful in the lives and vocations of interesting people. This is episode 18, an interview with an interesting, good, true, and beautiful person, Shelby Abbott. Shelby, welcome via Zoom from where? Pennsylvania? Yeah, right outside of Philly. Right outside of Philly. Welcome to the Hammer and Quill. Good, true, and beautiful. Well, one out of three ain't bad. That's right. You're at least beautiful. I, I think <laughs> no, no. No. I think you're the first person who's gotten that. You haven't introduced. No. I haven't. I haven't called, called anyone else beautiful. Well, there's certain reasons for that. Yeah, that's yeah. You've known Shelby for. I've a while. known Shelby for 17 years at least. And yeah, I saw you did the math on that. That's pretty. That's pretty cool that you were able to trace it back. Yeah, that well, specifically. Well, I remember when I was. Um, no, you know what? It's been more than 17 years. I was wrong on my math. I went to Radford. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not a strong math school. That's all I'm saying. It's a great school. But Didn't I meet you at JMU? Yes, that's right. While I was still in college. So I was thinking 17 years because that's when I joined staff mm. with crew. And mm. Shelby was already on staff. But I had met him far, far before then. Back in my rebellious a college. A long, long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, my early rebellion years. There was a, there's, it's just constant rebellion. But... <laughs> Well, Shelby, welcome. We're glad to have you. Uh, and, you know, we've taken a bit of a hiatus here on the Hammer Quill. It's been a while. It's been a while, but we're back. Yeah. We needed to rest and recover. From we're, what? We're From ready, what? But we're ready to release our next album. <laughs> <laughs> the band is back together. What were we recovering from? Just too much COVID-19. time around each other. <laughs> we didn't have oh, too much time around each other. That's probably right. Yeah. Yeah, not recovering from anything, but just, you know, you know, and we've got, I had fans, listeners texting me saying, when's the next episode coming out? You know, my, my mother-in-law was just saying that, that we have been threatening the, the joy of her drive home because she comes and she watches Lila for us, uh, weekly. And then she will, she would listen to the podcast on the way home. She can't have joy without us. But we've, we stopped. And so she ran out of episodes. She's been depressed ever since. I mean, that's what she said. Not depressed, but she did say that we, we've made her drive home less fun because we don't have any podcasts. Well, this is all about, this is all about us serving those two fans. (laughs) That's right. And the, and the dozens of others of you out there. Well, we're so glad to have Shelby on here. We this podcast is all about the good, true, and beautiful. And we what we want to do is is have people like Shelby on, uh, who are friends of ours, who are friends of the Bonhoeffer House, or who are doing really interesting things in their vocation. And look at vocation, that is calling. How is it that God has called Shelby to uh, live and move and have His being in in the context where He is? Through the lens of Philippians 4, 8, which says, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so we want to stop and look at the lives and vocations of people serving God in a Philippians 4, 8 kind of way. And pay maybe a special attention to work and friendship and study because these are things that are values of ours with the Bonhoeffer House. Maybe learn some tips and tricks from Shelby, uh, unique habits and have a little bit of fun along the way. Now, we wanted to have Shelby on because he's a longtime friend of mine. I, I had written down 17 years. It's even longer than that, probably 20 years, probably 20 years, maybe more. He's been serving college students on staff with crew for at least that many years, 
has a unique vocation, speaking, writing, engaging, not just with college students, but engaging with young people all around the country. Are you worldwide? Let's we'll just say the globe. He's global. He's all over the place, Shelby Abbott. And we wanted to hear more about what he does, talk about, and talk some about his new book, Doubtless. Now, Shelby, would you please introduce yourself? Answer the same question we make everybody answer, which is what would be on the back of your baseball card? Yeah, I saw that you had, had sent that question over. So, yeah, my name is Shelby Abbott. I've uh, been on staff with Crew for 21 years, a little over 21 years now. And recently, this last uh, early winter, made the switch from campus ministry over to family life ministry, which is a, a crew ministry. And um, now I'm my, my technical title is Next Generation Content Specialist, which makes me sound way better than I really am. Mm. Uh, but it, it, it gives me the opportunity to be able to do the things that, that I think I'm best at, the way that the Lord has gifted me, which is communication, writing, speaking, um, like everybody else in America, I'll be starting a podcast soon. Welcome to the club. Yes. Uh, so things like that. Um, what would be on the back of my baseball card? Um, five foot six, which is how tall I am. Um, <laughs> in case that was vague. Um, yeah, but I think that would be on there. I think uh, I like shoes mm. uh i like i'm not a sneakerhead but i i do like shoes a lot and then i like uh jackets as well um i like movies and i'm a bit of a uh nerd when it comes to, to things like star wars the fast and the furious franchise um and lots of other like yes. silly things when i turn when i turn on the tv which I still have cable, which is, you know, yeah, archaic. But um, when I turn on the TV, it's always to the Food Network. I always watch the Food Network, and I can't cook at all. So <laughs> I would maybe put that on, on the back of my card. I love the Food Network, but I cannot cook. There's already so much I want to just yeah. <laughs> chase down. Like, I, you've got to be the first person. I mean, there's certainly there's got to be dozens of you out there who uh, who love Star Wars and Fast and the Furious. Oh yeah. Did you know I've never watched a Fast and Furious <gasps> movie? Gasp. Well, then we should have. This could be a long conversation. Um, the, I have a whole a whole theory about how you should start watching the Fast and Furious franchise. Because if you start with with uh, the wrong number, wouldn't you, you start at one? Would you not start at one? One would assume that you would start with one, yeah. <laughs> Teach you me. You would probably assume that. There's a, we, I'm and sure we have time. Right. I'm sure. Oh, you okay. Would start with okay. One. Start with yes. one. And then where do you go? You skip two and three and you watch four. Then you watch five. And when you're in five, you know things are about to get very, very good. So you watch <laughs> five, six, seven. And then you watch three. And then you watch eight. And then you watch two because it exists. Uh, and then, well, if COVID wouldn't have happened, we'd, we'd be watching nine by now. But like uh, it's it got pushed to next year. Have you written about this? I feel like you need to write an article on the the guide to the Fast and Furious franchise. 
I wrote an article uh, about the ethnic diversity in the Fast and Furious franchise and why it's such a special franchise because it includes so much diversity in there. But no, I've not I've not written about I've tweeted about how you should watch it, but mm-hmm. tweeting is not anything important. Well, well, we'll be sure to link to your Twitter and we'll find that article and post it in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, the article about, <laughs> about ethnic diversity. You're not also moderating a subreddit somewhere, are you? A, a, a Fast and Furious subreddit <laughs> with conspiracy theories about or, or theory, not, watching theories? Not under my given name. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. Now, Shelby, you're also married. Tell us a little bit about family life for you. Yeah, um, I uh, got married to Rachel. Uh, back in 2006. Uh, I was on staff at JMU. She was a student. I was a single staff man there. So that was super, super scandalous. Um, And we got married and she came on staff and we uh, raised support for about a year or so. And then we reported up to our area office in Philadelphia, which is where I am now. Um, My wife does graphic design for the campus ministry. She's a very good designer. And um, we have two kids a nine-year-old named Quinn and a seven, almost seven-year-old named Hayden. And so we love both of our girls. And um, we just this summer buckled under the cultural pressure and bought a puppy. Mm. So we got a puppy this summer and her name is Pippa. She's a Cavapoo, a King Charles Cavalier and a miniature poodle. So she's super fluffy. Mm. Cavapoo. I would not have known what a Cavapoo was. So thank you That's for right. explaining. Yeah, I didn't know what it was either before we started doing research about getting a dog and constantly questioning ourselves, going, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? What are we doing? <laughs> are you still doing that, the questioning? Uh, to a degree, yes. Yeah. But uh, in, in general, we found that dogs are very good for mental health. So mm. it's, been, it's been really helpful, not only for our kids, of course, but for me and Rachel. We've loved it. It's been great. Man, get them, Lord. Maybe I need to get a dog. Maybe you need a dog. Then I wouldn't have to take such a long break from the hammer and quill. You don't get take my head in the right place. <laughs> you don't take cat cat on walks. <laughs> <laughs> Shelby, we have a cat here that just showed up one day seven years ago. It we chose actually, them. It chose us. Yeah. We thought it was a bat because we were sitting in a, yeah, I know. I know. It's, we we were sitting on a screen in porch in the in at dusk we are you know with our little kids and this little black thing that was smaller than your hand was just crawling all, uh, like sideways on the screen on the screen and so at first i wanted to run over and be like pow and knock that thing off of there and then we realized it's a little kitten you wanted to catch it with the garbage bag garbage bag on, on somebody's the- head <laughs> and so then that's just been our cat 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 is its name his name it yeah. is a he and we feed it <laughs> and that's it that's it Good that's feeding. it that's glad it. that there's a lot of emotion when it comes to that cat and you <laughs> we feed it and uh i don't take it on walks you don't yeah. no no it has not helped with my emotional or mental health at all but it does kill the mice we don't have mice in the oh. house that's so. good so you don't cook but you watch Food Network. Does your yeah. does your wife cook well? She does. She's a very good cook. She's uh, she likes different uh, exploring different recipes and stuff like that. I'm usually like a pretty plain Jane person when it comes to eating. Like I'm not. I mean, if there's chicken fingers or like a, a cheeseburger on the menu, I usually opt for something like that. Um, 
Rachel likes a lot more like salmon and pecan crusted chicken, like all that kind of crazy fancy stuff, uh, which um, she orders. And then um, I order something else. But uh, <laughs> cooking at home, she does a pretty good job too of that. There's really no need for me to do that, even though like I, I've honestly had no desire to cook either. It's, it's weird. It's mm. very strange. I just feel like it would be a little bit painful to watch the food network all the time and then not be able to have an outlet to eat good yummy Maybe. stuff. Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I started to turn Guy Fieri into a, into a celebrity that I wanted to meet. I actually did meet him one day randomly um, <laughs> in town. I ran up to him and got a picture with him and he was nice to me. So. I've heard he's very nice. Yeah, he's, he's pretty cool. I've heard he's very nice and uh, he seems cool. <laughs> he seems cool. Now, Shelby, you, uh, you've already mentioned uh, Fast and Furious and Star Wars. You didn't mention Starship Troopers, which we watched together one summer. Do you remember that? Do you mean Battlestar Galactica? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's you all do. the same That's thing. That's what right? you mean. That, that, I mean we watched Battlestar Galactica one summer. That's what I meant. Which is, this, I mean, the same thing as Star Wars, right? <laughs> you can stop talking. Um, but yes, we, we watched all of season one. Jesse and I watched all of season one. I never in a watched, very rare summer yep. where my family was around, but Jesse was bashing it yep, summer. Yep. I was just like the and upstairs uncle. After, <laughs> uncle after, Jesse. After every day... Jesse and I would kind of look at each other during dinner time and be like, we're watching Battlestar Galactica, right? <laughs> and we, we made it through all of season one. I think at some points we just kept saying Bears Beats. <laughs> we and did. We, we knew exactly what we were talking about. We yes. did. And then and then I never watched season two. Neither no, did I. You didn't really? Oh, no. man. One day. One yeah. day we get the families together. <laughs> Reunite. <laughs> and we watch season and two. And abandon our families. <laughs> watch Battlestar Galactica oh. season two. Good. Okay. Well, we're all, we really are about exploring how God is honored in a variety of vocations. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing. You mentioned you are the, uh, let's see if I can remember this, the content director creator for next generations. Yeah. People. They call it next generation content specialist. Specialist. So, mm. so what does that mean? Target audience. My target audience is, as 18 to 28 year olds. So not much changed in terms of uh, who I was uh, aiming at when it came to my content and um, speaking, writing, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I moved from campus ministry over to family life, but they intentionally brought me on because they wanted to reach a larger demographic, uh, both age-wise, ethnicity-wise, um, because family life was kind of known for reaching an older demographic, primarily white. And people so like, people like uh, me. they brought me on. What's that? People like me. Yes, like exactly. Middle, middle-aged white um, people. Yeah. Yeah. So they brought me on to really reach out and have a voice toward the younger generation. Since I've been working with them for so long, um, I am not young myself, but I am able to, um, somehow connect with that audience and, my content written wise, at least is, is geared toward 18 to 28 year olds. Good. Now, how did you t talk a little bit about how you discern God's call in your life? So you went to Virginia tech. 
And uh, we're probably not there to be on the track of crew, staff, person, missionary uh, here in the States. How did you know when you were called to ministry? How did you know you were called to write and speak and, and, and do what you're doing now? Um, well, I became a Christian January of my freshman year um, at Virginia Tech. Uh, uh, midway through the year, I, I was one of those kids who was a good kid. And I thought because I was religious that God accepted me. And I realized pretty quickly that it's a gift of grace once I, I got involved with uh, crew and I got involved with uh, navigators as well my freshman year. And so I came face to face with the fact that I could not buy my salvation by being a good kid and that it was a gift of grace. And so made that decision January of my freshman year, eventually chose the ministry of crew. Navigators was great too. Just crew was more of my flavor. And um, by the time I got to my junior year at tech, it was pretty obvious that God had uh, called me into full-time missions. I wanted to give back to the organization that had given so much to me. And so it was a natural decision to come on staff with crew. Um, I just, really took to heart that the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. There's a lot of people who are lining up for a lot of high paying jobs, but not a lot of people were lining up to uh, be missionaries. And and not that people were disobeying or anything like that, but I was just like, I'm being called here. And if I go anywhere else, I'm going to be disobedient. Mm -hmm. So came on staff in the summer of 99 and raised support for about a year. And my first assignment was James Madison University in Virginia. I was there for seven years. And so the calling was pretty obvious to be there. Um, after uh, I got married, uh, Rachel and I, uh, like I said, we, we raised support for a while. And then we did a one-year uh, stint down at our world headquarters in Orlando. And I really felt like God was calling me to combine my gifts and talents of speaking and humor with evangelism training. And so I ended up doing stand-up comedy for two years with the campus ministry, training Christian students on uh, motivation and uh, kind of tactics on how to communicate your faith. It was brutal. It was very hard. (laughs) Um, Stand-up comedians are, are, uh, you know, calloused people for a reason. Uh, but after that, I, I brought a friend of mine on my best friend and we ended up doing stand-up comedy for non-believing students as well, sharing the gospel, doing that for a couple of years. And in the midst of all that is when I kind of started writing, I think I was on staff for a good 10 years before I actually wrote anything. I never really enjoyed writing when I was in high school or, or college. I was never a major in anything like that. It's just one of those things. I was a communicator and God gave me the ability to be able to take verbal communication and put it in print in a way that feels very easy to read and, and relatable because I often, it's a little bit different, but I often write the way that I speak. And that doesn't always happen for different um whether oral communicators or just uh, authors, they, they can't translate to one or the other, but God has given me the ability to do that. And so I think because of that, and I have a you know a sense of humor and it's whimsical, but I'm also um, pretty reformed in my theology. And I think humor is often required when we're talking about um, difficult things, mm. theological. Whimsical and reformed. <laughs> that should be the new. That's the name of my future podcast. That, the, you, <laughs> the new I would line. listen. Yeah, that that's uh, a rare trait, sadly. Yeah. Oh well, those two going together, maybe not. There's a, probably a lot of whimsical reform people listening. We don't want to offend you. <laughs> We're talking about other people. 
Uh, you know, right. Shelby, I heard you mention quite a few times uh, really knowing that you are good at something. Yeah. Right. So um, knowing that there's a sense of humor, knowing that you can write in a way that that translates your, you know, your voice to paper. Uh, how important do you think that is for those who are listening? You know, I do. I do think that we have some young folks by young folks. I mean, next generation, 18 to yes. 28, 28. Uh, 28. Yeah. listening. So so, what you know, t- talk a little bit more about how important it is to know what you're good at. How do you find out you're good at something? You, do, does someone need to tell you that you go do stand up comedy <laughs> and then you find out quickly that you're bad at it? Like, no, I, I think that you need time. I think time. there's no substitute for time. Um, and so I just discovered over the course of seven years of ministry, hands-on with college students, what I was good at and what I was not good at. And by the grace of God, I had a boss who allowed me to like, he gave me a long leash and allowed me to make mistakes in a way where I was like, well, I'll never do that again. Or kind of discover and hone my craft. He gave me opportunities for that. And I'm really thankful uh, to shout out to Dan Flynn. Um, so he uh, really helped me. At one point, I remember he told me after I spoke one night at a crew meeting, he came up to me and he goes, have you ever seen Amadeus? And I was like, no. And he goes, it's the mo- it's this movie that's based on a play about two composers. There's Salieri and there's uh, Mozart, um, uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And um, at one point, Salieri realizes that uh, Mozart is the future. He's the better composer. And Dan looked at me and he started to tear up and he goes, he goes, I'm Salieri, you're Mozart. And I, that really meant a lot to me uh, when he said that because Dan is a very gifted communicator. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he really breathed a lot of life into me by mm. saying something like that. It was a really, really high compliment um, I, I made a lot of mistakes, uh, you know, pride will do that over time. So I think you need time to learn wisdom. I think also you need to ask people, Hey, give me honest feedback about what you think I'm best at. Mm. Like what would be my best contribution to the kingdom? How can I best steward the gifts that God has given me, Mm. uh, to make the most deep impact for the kingdom? And so, yeah, that would be probably my advice. Do you want to, do you want to ask about mentors i mean that's dan flynn yeah i did have Breathe a question life. yeah i had a question in here about mentors let's jump in there because you're describing with dan who is a tremendous guy and a tremendous communicator a kind of sense of being called up uh a um you know even hearing you describe that i was thinking man i would have liked to hear that <laughs> yeah uh, uh i would like still like to hear that uh you know that so so talk a little bit about the role of mentors in your life maybe maybe particularly those who have mentored you uh, and why that's important for you? Yeah, I think my first mentor in life was a guy named Dave Broadwell. He was a a crew staff member of Virginia Tech. He believed in me. And uh, at one point, uh, I had been a Christian for like a year. He was my Bible study leader. And during my sophomore year, I, I remember being out front of a crew event of some kind and talking to him. And I said something funny and he laughed and then he got real serious and he looked at me and he said, Shelby, you got so much stinking potential if you would just live up to it, which in that moment, like really kind of hurt, but it was a galvanizing moment for me, meaning like he saw opportunity in my future. And if I would just quit being an idiot, then maybe I would like one day allow that, that raw talent to flourish. Um, 
It's kind of how the Bonhoeffer house started. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. I knew you were going to say that. That's not true. <laughs> You're still not living up to your potential, no, Michael. You saw, no, I'm you kidding. Saw a bunch of, you saw a bunch of idiots. And yeah, yeah. We're like... Well, it started, it started with Dave. And then when I graduated, like I said, Dan Flynn was kind of a really great mentor of mine. Um, uh, I went on a summer mission once. And this, there's a, uh, the director of that mission was named Roger Hershey. Uh, and he really poured into me as well. He discipled me that summer, and I, I still have a continuing friendship with him today. When I got to Pennsylvania, there was a season, a really dry spell of no one really pouring into me. And so my wife graciously started to pray that so- God would bring someone into my life. And um, at the time, uh, I was going through uh, a lot of chronic pain as a result of a herniated disc in my back, and I was meeting with my doctor every month. I was literally going to the doctor's office every month. And my doctor is a a believer, loves Jesus. He's one of those guys that when you meet him, you go, that guy really loves Jesus, but not in an annoying way, like in a really, really cool way. And so I asked him at one point, I said, hey, would you be willing to meet with me and just kind of ask me some questions? Ask me if I'm walking with God, opening my Bible, yelling at my kids, loving my wife, whatever. And he agreed. And so we we met, um, once or twice a semester, but then um, I was emceeing a conference one time and uh, Paul David Tripp was the speaker and I met him there and Paul lives in Philly. I live right outside of the city, about 45 minutes outside the city. And uh, when we got done with the conference, he said, where do you live in? And I said, I live in Downingtown. He goes, we should get together. And so um, I started going into the city and um, about once a month, I meet with Paul Tripp, and that is, he's been my mentor since about 2015. Uh, and I've just praised God for him because he's uh, obviously very gifted. We, we're we're uh, gifted in a number of the same ways, but he's got so much experience and wisdom, and he's suffered greatly. Mm. Uh, therefore, he's a, he's a humble person. And um, uh, it's not what I go through suffering wise, isn't like it's not really theoretical to him. I, yeah. I know that he. It and and that really helps for me to connect with him and really listen to what he has to say. So yeah, uh, I met Paul Tripp once. He's awesome. I had a I had been growing a mustache. It was independent of Paul Tripp. It wasn't like a fan mustache. It was, it was for him. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. It was. I just wanted to have a mustache, and because they're cool, they and uh, and and my wife Jenny doesn't like them, and so occasionally I'm like, I'm a man. <laughs> I'm a grown mustache <laughs> uh, for a few weeks at least. Is and that I, what you said to Paul when you met him? No, <laughs> no, he was speaking. Uh, he was speaking at a conference here locally, and I happened to have a mustache. And I was there, and somebody was like, "Oh, you should get a picture with Paul Tripp. You guys both have mustaches." And I was like, "Okay." And so uh, I was like, "Hey, hey, Paul Tripp, can I get a picture with you?" And then he's like, "Sure." <laughs> I was like, cool. And then the person taking the picture was like, look, you both have mustaches. And he did not smile. <laughs> and so there's a picture of me smiling and Paul Tripp not smiling uh, while, <laughs> while I met him the one time. So that's great. That's my Paul Tripp story. He probably hears about mustache. <laughs> As we walked away, I was like, I'm sure like he probably has someone talking about the mustache like every yeah. all the time. But yeah. Uh, and am I right to say that your podcast is going to incorporate him? Uh, my personal podcast, 
well, I'll have him on as a guest initially, but I'm I'm going to be hosting in the fall uh, the Ask Paul Trip Show, which is kind of a newer. They they've tried it a little bit in the past, but they wanted to have a host, and so I'm going to um, kind of be the uh, similar to the way that Tony Ranke and, yeah. and John Piper your ask pastor john thing I'll, I'll be a little bit more conversational in that it won't just be like a bookend of me on on both ends like tony does but tony does a great job so i um i'm gonna kind of dialogue with him and hopefully it'll be like candid but he'll ask some some hard questions that are being sent in by different listeners or readers and stuff like that and we're gonna the plan is to start that in the fall maybe october i think that's exciting that's exciting. So, so uh, throughout your life in the last, at least throughout your vocation, you have had mentors who have been calling you out, calling you up, supporting you. I love what he said, what Shelby said about um, the importance of someone who has some kind of uh, lived wisdom, some, you know, experience with suffering. If you're going through suffering, some, uh, you know, some, some way to be able to, how did you put it, Shelby? This person uh, I, I want to listen to this person because they've experienced something like this before. Yeah. Pain isn't theoretical to them. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and you'd be surprised. I mean, suffering is inevitable in some form or fashion, but I've found at least in my life that suffering has been, uh, the galvanizing work of the Holy spirit mm-hmm. in my life that I would not be where I am today spiritually if I had not suffered for over a decade of chronic pain. Now I never would have chosen like physical pain off of a list. Like of these are the ways you could suffer in the next 10 years. Like I never would have picked that for myself, but God did. And um, it changed me in, in a lot of ways initially for the bad, because I was constantly recognizing that my, my faith had a lot to do with, um, what I believed God could give me in having a relationship with him. And so on the other side of that, recognizing that like, Oh, my, my, my God has, has been someone that I have been using in order to get certain things. And so mm-hmm. that was troubling obviously, but uh, Jesus really meeting me in those moments and helping me to see that, Hey, he is enough that um, he is with me in that process. It's not necessarily where, where's the light at the end of the tunnel, When's it going to be over? Where's the silver lining of the dark cloud? It's, hey, he's with me in the process. Mm-hmm. And I can identify with Christ's sufferings in a way that I wasn't able to before. And that has made me the better person for it, mm-hmm. which I never would have come to that conclusion or recognized that if I had not suffered. So I love the suffering, but I hate the suffering at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that complexity is the Christian life in, mm-hmm. in reality for the way I've experienced it. Yeah. Shelby, what did that look like for you to, to have Jesus meet you in the midst of that? Was that, uh, you know, something emotional and spiritual? Was that, uh, Jesus coming to you in the word of, of mentors or, or your wife or, um, fill that in a little bit for us. Yeah. I found that, um, me, like many people, when, when bad things or hard things happen or suffering or trials come, the inevitable knee-jerk reaction question is, why is this happening? Why? And uh, about four or five years into it, I recognized that why is the wrong question. It's just not the right question. Um, It's really more of like, okay, Lord, what do you want to do in my life? Um, How do you want me to change? Uh, So the why question 
when you think about it, Job never got an answer to the question why. Yeah. Um, and uh, Job was one of those books that when I was a younger believer, I was always afraid to read because I was like, oh, and then I'm going to be thrown into the midst of trials and <laughs> I don't want to do that. It's like, you, know, you never want to pray for patience because then you're going to have a long day in traffic. Uh, I believed that before, but uh, now it's like, uh, Job is like a, an incredibly comforting book to me because Job never gets answers. And if God would have told him the reasons why he wouldn't have been uh, who he was, he needed to go through those kind of things just because that's what God wanted for him. And if God, if you're, if you're, view of God is big enough, then you'll understand that. And so it just took a long time to figure that out. Like I said, my doctor's a believer. Um, I was on opioids for like four years and I was like, this is just ruining my life. And so uh, I was afraid that if I got off the the opioids, that the pain would come back flooding in a way that like I'd never be able to recover from again. And I stepped down and weaned off over the course of about four months and the pain wasn't what I expected. It was, it was a lot less severe than I thought. And so I asked my doctor, I was like, is there any like reason why, like I wouldn't be feeling the same amount of pain as I was many years ago when this whole thing started. And he goes, well, we've been praying about this for seven years. So it stands to reason that God would say yes, eventually. Right. Wow. And I was like, is that your professional medical opinion? Because <laughs> that, that a medical opinion sucks. And he goes, Hey man, just take the win. And so I did. And, uh, you know, I still feel pain every day. It's not severe, like I said, the, the way it was before. And it could come back at any time with with the degree of, of, of severity as it was. But right now, like, um, I'm doing a lot better. Mm. And God has met me in moments where I never thought it would have been possible. And again, I owe that to the pain. I owe that to the suffering because I was not listening before i was not paying attention and god loves me enough to not leave me alone that's really good that's really good i was talking with uh someone last week about romans 9 and they were kind of dropping in and asking that same question why why would god do this why would god choose this one and not that one why would and and uh we had this really a lot of the same conversation about hey look th- th- that's actually the wrong question to ask about romans 9 right? That's number one. You can't just drop in because there's something happening leading up to Romans 9 and then coming out on the other side of it, right? Like Romans 10, we're, we're talk, talking about the free offer of the gospel and giving, so giving it away with the assumption that people are going to believe that God isn't, you know, um, he, he isn't, uh, he, he is, he is not desiring that any would perish. He's patient and he's merciful. And so, and then Romans 8, this picture of uh, that God is working things out for good. So Romans nine actually is is fit, it's more. The question is, what is God up to? Where is God? What is God doing? What is um, you know? Where is He in this? Uh, how can I trust Him in this? And so I really appreciate that. Not asking the question why, and even thinking about Job as a comforting book. That you know, Job in the end was comforted even before he was restored. He was comforted in the uh, in the presence, really coming face to face with God who answers the why question with I am. Yeah. Yeah. Man, so thank you for getting into that some. And I love too, Shelby, what you said about about mentors, because I think that a lot of times people are waiting for either uh, someone to ask them to be mentored or someone to ask them to mentor them. And I love the, the you, you kind of gave multiple illustrations that some of those are vocational, right? You're just, you're on staff, you know, Dan Flynn doesn't have a choice, right? I mean, he has a choice, but in a sense, he's kind of, 
I've got Shelby. I'm going to, I'm going to invest in him. But some of them weren't right. Like your doctor, you're having to take the initiative to say, Hey, you know, can we, can we begin to meet up and talk about more than just my pain or my back? Uh, and then with, with Paul Tripp, he's pursuing you, right? He's saying, Hey, we should get together. We should, you know, spend time together. And so I, I like that, that idea of intentionality. So whether you're on one side or the other, you're looking for a mentor or you're thinking I might want to invest some time and energy in this yeah. person to just take the initiative and, and, and begin. It's not like, you know, there wasn't like a mentoring contract any of them walked through with you, was there? No, <laughs> no. In fact, the first time I met with Paul, uh, we had breakfast and then I went over to his loft and we talked over there. And I feel like to a degree, it was a bit of an audition, which we've laughed about this since. But like at the end, I was like, well, if you're up for it, I, I'd love to get together again. <laughs> like I felt the liberty to say that after our first meeting. And he was like, yeah, I'd, I'd love that too. But I, I found out later on that like, uh, well, the day that he asked me if I wanted to get together when we got back to Philly, I told my wife and she just smiled. She goes, yeah, I thought so. And I was like, what? And she goes, I prayed specifically that he would ask you that. Yeah. And I was like, what? <laughs> so uh, apparently uh, God listens a little bit more when, when my wife asks some questions. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Which went, yeah. That's not true. I'm joking, but. Uh, it was incredible. And he sought me out and because I didn't feel the liberty to, to meet with him and say, Hey, can we get together? I, I, I did with my doctor, but Paul was a little bit more of like a, a celebrity. And I was like, I don't, I don't really think he would have any time for someone like me, but by, by great, by the grace of God, like we, we did end up getting together. So it was good. That's good. That's good. And it's good that you didn't start with a mustache picture. <laughs> yeah. He would have not smiled and yeah. walked away. Yeah. Hey, so uh, before we talk about your new book, Doubtless, uh, love to talk a little bit about your calling as you, there's a sense in which you're a public thinker. You're, you know, you're tweeting for, you mentioned literally dozens of people, maybe more than that, hundreds, perhaps <laughs> thousands. Uh, and, and really you're, you're tasked with in your ministry being faithful and courageous and wise. And I love to talk about how you navigate that, how you pick and choose your battles. What are you commenting on? And uh, recently, like within the last year, you had a kind of your own, uh, you went viral, you went viral. And I love to know what that was like. You know, you wrote an article about the deconstruction of, um, of Rhett McLaughlin. Am I saying that right? Uh, yeah. His, his kind of faith deconstruction, uh, Rhett of Rhett and Link. And, um, and man, you, I'd love to hear more about that too. So what was that like? Uh, how do you navigate that? Tell us a little bit about that. I don't choose to very often to enter the fray when it comes to social media. It's just um, people are dying on a lot of digital hills out there. And I just choose to remain um, more intentionally focused on gospel-related things. Um, the reason... And I do that not only in on Twitter and Instagram is more of a personal thing. I'm mostly just posting pictures of my kids. Um, Facebook is, uh, yeah, not somewhere that I want to engage in those kind of things because of who's out there. And um, but when it came to the rent and link thing, uh, I knew them a long time ago when they were on staff with crew, and uh, we were actually going to work together before, right before they left staff. Um, we were going to do some specific things at this conference called Big Break. And um, we kept in touch for a few years after they left. And um, 
I mean, they were always very kind, very nice to me. In fact, when I got married, they sent me like uh, a few gifts, like uh, just just personal for me that were funny. And uh, yeah, I loved uh, them. And I, and I believed and I, and I because they said they were going into the entertainment business for the purposes of shining the light of Christ. There's a few things that happened over the course of the years uh, where I was like, hmm, I wonder what's going on with them because they would uh, communicate less and less. Uh, and, you know, I was never really close, close with them. And so I just kind of fell off the radar, which is fine. Uh, but then uh, they started tweeting about a few things and I'm like, I wonder how they're doing spiritually. And then the the podcasts came out and they took, you know, four, three different podcasts, four different podcasts. Um, I listened to all of them, whatever many there were, um, to methodically go through their journey spiritually and um where they're at now and rent and link are listened to by a lot of young people and that is my target audience and um on top of that there was the crew connection so that's really the reason why i felt like i should respond now when i when i wrote the article i did so thoughtfully prayerfully i screened it through a number of different people whom I trust and they gave me some good feedback. They, they made some edits in a few places. And when I posted it, I was really, my desire was to protect the young person who was thrown for a loop by the fact that uh, uh, in particularly Rhett's arguments about uh, how his Christian faith kind of crumbled to protect the people who, who maybe would believe that very quickly, or um, they would, you know, Red is a very gifted communicator, so is yeah. Link, and their 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 woo was turned on quite a bit. On top of the fact that they're like funny, they're really funny, and they've they're very talented, and they know what they're doing when it comes to communication. Um, but there were a few red flags that went up for me, and I was like, you know what? I need to defend the people who are now confused by the fact that they've deconstructed their faith and they're questioning their own faith, and like I'm going to stand up for Jesus Christ. In, in a strong way. And I think I'm, I think I'm going to take some hits for it. Uh, so I wrote the article, like I said, I screened it quite a bit. I published it on my own website, which I looked at analytics the day before, uh, I had 14 page views. That's one, four, uh, 14 whole people came to my website the day before. And then the day after when I published the article I had 52,000 the next day. So it went, it went viral pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, I had to turn off Twitter comments. That's even. People, I'm sorry. That's even more. That? That's even more viral than the Hammer and Quill podcast. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, you no, had to I, turn off comments I, on Twitter. Yeah, I haven't looked at your analytics, so I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I had to turn off the comments because it was just my phone was going nuts, buzzing, and um, I started to realize pretty quickly that people were some people were not happy with what I wrote, um, and then uh, you know. For my blog, my comments, I go through and personally approve or disapprove every comment that comes to my blog. And I just decided in a spirit of integrity, I was going to approve every comment that came in. And, uh, you know, once it hit the Rhett and Link fandom circles, uh, there's some pretty poisonous stuff that was written about me on uh, my blog. What I didn't expect was that Christians would come after me as well, in particular, Christian crew staff. They... Uh, there's a there's a internal communication called workplace that we do uh, in crew and so if you're on staff with crew you guys can we can all communicate it's basically a Facebook platform for a work environment and people started 
somebody posted my article there because people were talking about it and they thought, oh, Shelby wrote the official crew response to Rhett and Link, which it wasn't ever at all. Um, and so uh, people started saying, I never would have said something like this to Rhett and Link. And uh, I thought what he did was bad and blah, blah, blah. And so somebody kind of tuned me into, they're like, hey, Shelby, there's a whole conversation that's happening about you without you being present on workplace. And so oh. I logged on and I read all the comments that people had said about me and the disapproving things that they said. There were a lot of proving ones as well. But instead of deciding to reply publicly on workplace i just went to our staff website where you could type in someone's name and find their phone number very easily and i called probably about a dozen staff members uh and just i left mostly messages and said hey i just wanted to listen to your perspective and hear what you had to say about this and um uh i want to i want to you know proverbs 29 and tons of places in proverbs said if you if you know if you're stiff-necked and you're going to break your neck, basically. So I want to be humble and listen and hear your perspective on this and apologize where appropriate. And um, I ended up talking to about maybe seven or eight of the people I called. And one guy actually picked up his phone when I called him, which was weird because nobody answers the phone. We don't recognize <laughs> the number. But uh, he had tweeted some pretty negative things about me and posted on Workplace. And like 20 minutes after he tweeted, I called him. And he goes, hello. And I was like, hey, is this so-and-so? And he goes, yeah. And I was like, hey, this is Shelby calling from Philadelphia. And he goes, uh, 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 hey. <laughs> I was like, hey, I'm just calling to listen to your perspective. You seem to disagree with me quite a bit. And I, I decided to put out fires that way instead yeah. of posting something again socially where everybody can read it and I would defend myself. And there's probably plenty of people out there that still have a negative opinion about me. And that's fine um, before the Lord. I, I believe I'm in a good spot and uh, I stood up for my savior at the very least. Um, if nobody approved of that, um, I know biblically I'm in the right. So, mm. what, a, what a great model, one that is very rare of personally approaching the people that are maybe publicly or semi-publicly taking you to task, saying things that you maybe think are unfair. Uh, when you were mentioning you went on there and saw names, I was picturing you like writing their names with red lipstick on your, on your, <laughs> on your board of people you're going to get back. But, but calling them personally to hear how, what they think is, is way better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a little closer to maybe the model of <laughs> the Jesus. scriptures, yeah. Jesus. Uh, you know, I want to say as someone down small town, Virginia, we, I knew families whose kids, uh, high school age, watch Rhett and Link, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners aren't familiar. So we're talking about millions of followers on YouTube, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is not and, just, yeah, it's big. Uh, I knew people whose high school kids were watching and didn't really know. So in some ways the deconversion podcasts, it wasn't like, uh, oh no, what's happened to them. It's, it's more, it more makes it, makes the idea of, of, uh, uh, deconstructing their faith or walking away from Jesus more possible. Like, oh, huh. You know, that, that sounds kind of appealing. That sounds kind of like I've had some of those same questions. Uh, the, the, yep. the answers I've had in the past haven't been, uh, ha haven't satisfied very, me very much either. And so I appreciated the article. We had it kind of going around in our circles down here, yours, as well as the one on, uh, the gospel coalition. I think you mentioned the, the author of that one earlier. Builders, yeah, she yeah. did a really great job as well. Um, but yeah, the, the, I felt like you know if they're going to take 
multiple hours in a podcast to evangelize their deconstruction, I'm going to go ahead and, and respond by writing an article. Yeah. And truthfully, after I got all this like pushback from the internet, I asked a bunch of questions. It was like, you know, Red and Link are supposed to be like fun guys that are spreading joy and cheer, but their fans are really, really bitter, like very angry people. Uh, and I was like, I don't know, did I do the right thing? Should I, should I post an apology or something like that? And right at the beginning of the lockdown, maybe like uh, the first week into March, my wife and I were standing on our front porch and we live on a cul-de-sac and our kids were playing out front. And this guy is walking down the street towards the end of the cul-de-sac where we live. And then he crosses the street to my side and he's, he's staring at me. And I've never seen this guy before. And then he gets to our yard and he starts walking up into our yard. And I'm like, hello, uh, can I help you? And he looks at me and he goes, are you Shelby Abbott? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, hey, I live in the cul-de-sac right over there uh, on the other side of your road. And um, I just wanted you to know that my son is a really big Rhett and Link fan. And he was just super confused after the Deconstruction podcast. But your article got sent to us by uh, someone random and um, found out through a series of events that you live like in my neighborhood. And I wanted to say that it really helped out my son. And once the lockdown is over, we'd love to have you guys over for dinner. And uh, you, maybe you could talk more with my son. And I was like, that's why I wrote the article. <laughs> <laughs> was for your son. <laughs> but that was a little a little wink from God to yeah, say, hey, yeah. despite all the garbage that's out there, uh, you did you did what I asked you to do. Mm. It was an obedience issue. So thank you for being obedient. And that, that helped me to feel uh, a little bit better. Shelby, could you could you quickly, succinctly share like what what was the main pushback you got? Um, I guess from the fan base. From the fan base, it's you know largely non-believing. Um, this is uh, garbage, BS. Um, you're you're a hypocrite. You're jealous. You're um, you never made it. Therefore, you're you're hoping for something by taking them down. Uh, you're malicious. You're, um, uh, so nothing you want to throw stones just to make yourself feel better or, or validate your own belief system, that kind of stuff. Gotcha. With, with Christians, with some of the Christians, particularly in crew who, um, they didn't like the way that I did it. Um, they, in fact, I had someone say, Hey, I work in a city uh, where where if you're quick to draw the line about what you believe, the quicker people will walk away. And I thought about that for a while, and I was like, doesn't Christianity in general draw a line? Doesn't Jesus draw lines like all the times? And in fact, the way that he was speaking to me is a version of drawing a line. And so I'm just, I'm not going to apologize for sharing the gospel. I'm just never going to do that. And so, and ultimately I was like, if this is the persecution I'm going through here in America on social media, I'm doing okay. Like people are being killed for their faith. Uh, you know, men and women are having their heads chopped off for, for pro professing Christ overseas. Uh, people are yelling at me and cursing at me in, in ones and zeros online. I I'm going to be fine. Mm. So not a lot of engagement about your actual argument or 
the content? Um, there were a few people that did push back on some of the different arguments, and I ended up posting a bit of an update on there because uh, I wanted to say, hey, this was not the official stance of crew at all in any way. This was my own personal um, response because I was the first one apparently publicly to respond from crew. Um, and that's how it was kind of toted with a bunch of other people. They're like crew, Shelby Abbott in crew said this. So I, I wanted to make sure that this was my own personal opinion. And then I apologized to Rhett and Link because I made the assumption that they were raised in an environment that was nominally Christian and not authentic Christianity. Because I, I, I basically said that most of their deconstruction was not a deconstruction of the Christian faith, but of cultural Christianity, mm. um, which I still believe is true. Um, the dangers of, of what we built in the, in the 90s, the mid to late 90s, and how that has eroded the cultural Christianity that's eroded when it's confronted with um, a lot of stuff that's being talked about in our culture today. So, but I did apologize and say I didn't mean to make assumptions about your family, the way you were raised. Your parents probably did a great job with that. So those were the things that I felt like I needed to retract. But everything else, I was like, nah, I'm just, I'm, this, is, this is what it is. So. Man, thank you for setting the example of uh, winsomely engaging uh, and then even being willing to uh, confess and, and make changes. And, and then Jesse already mentioned, you know, how you handled calling your, your fellow staff members. That's just uh, that's a, a good example for us to follow. That's right. Yeah, we, we don't have only pastors listening. We don't, you know, but, but the Bonhoeffer House, we are... Uh, are primarily we're training and, and investing in and calling up and raising the next generation of pastors and church planters and missionaries and church leaders. And so I do think that's a good model, especially because more and more we are going to find ourselves at odds with culture. We're going to find ourselves uh, in, in situations where we are being criticized or uh, canceled in a sense um, in ways that just, just for simply stating what the scriptures say, just for, uh, and so I do think that's a great, especially, I'm especially interested in following up with our guys on the idea of how to personally approach people who are criticizing you, how to um, not just respond kind of, okay, you're here, well, I'm going to go here, and, you're, and we're just going to keep going up and up and bigger and bigger and more, more and more public, but going one-on-one, going private with that is a good model. Now, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and, and love to give you a few minutes to talk about your new book, Doubtless. A uh, big release on Monday. I know it was a big release on Monday because I bought it on Monday. <laughs> the second it was available, I was like, I got it. It's coming in today. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Why did you write it? Who would benefit the most from reading it? Um, so I wrote Doubtless because there were a combination of a couple of things. I run a summer mission with crew of college students. And so every year, a new group of about 30 to 35 college students come in for kind of like a, a spiritual boot camp over the course of the summer. And a few years ago, at the end of the first week after the students arrived, I was uh, two guys requested to get together with me and ask a few questions. So they came over to my apartment and they said, hey, we've just been really struggling with a lot of doubts about different things. And so I listened to them for a while. Turns out they had taken a, a religion class at their at their secular university and their, their professor just shot holes in Christianity and uh, they were asking a lot of questions. And so at the end of that time, I recommended that they, uh, you know, read a couple of different things. Uh, so I created a resource list for them. Right around the same time that that was happening, my brother-in-law, my wife's youngest brother, 
um, was going through a spiritual deconstruction of his own and in a process of a few years ended up walking away from the Christian faith. And so the combination of those two things on top of Paul Tripp saying, you need to write about this for a younger generation uh, of people who will listen to you from your perspective. And so those, those three things really kind of were the, the motivating factors for me to dive into this. Primarily the one I was motivated by was my brother-in-law because obviously he's really close and uh, we still talk all the time still. Um, we're very close with him. My wife and I are both and um, we're engaging in spiritual conversations with him all the time. So I said, you know, this seems to be more and more of an issue with young people, college students. And so um, it's not probably going to get better. It's only going to get more difficult for them. And so instead of writing like an apologetics book, because there's, hundreds, if, th if not thousands of great apologetics books out there, I want to write more about what the social aspects are of doubting, what it, what uh, the, the stigma kind of is when you doubt as a college student, and how I've seen so many people, whether they wrestle with whatever issue that they're wrestling with, they, they do so silently, and then they begin to fade back and away from the community of believers. Yeah, yeah. And then you hear stories or you see on social media that like they're not walking with God and you're like, what happened to them? So my, my encouragement, there is one chapter in the book that talks about the resurrection. So it's that, that's an apologetic chapter, but it's really more about how can you doubt well? Um, is doubt the same thing as unbelief? Um, what can you do practically to fight against um, doubts when they come along? Is doubt something to be ashamed of? Is doubt something that is biblical? Like, um, and I dive into a number of those different things. Uh, and when I, you know, the first chapter is doubt is, is biblical and it's common. So a lot of people think, oh, nobody else is asking this question and God's going to be mad at me if I do ask these questions. And I'm like, open the book of Psalms, look at literally all the disciples. Uh, the example that I really double click on is John the Baptist, because John the Baptist was the precursor to the Messiah. He called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He baptized Jesus, and the audible voice of God came from heaven and said, this is my son. Yet at the end of John the Baptist's life, he's asking Jesus, are you the one or should we expect another? And so while people would look at that and go, why is he questioning his faith? That's dumb. I'm oddly comforted by that because if John the Baptist can doubt after hearing the audible voice of God saying that this is my son, then I'm in good biblical company as well. And so a lot of people just don't recognize that. They think there's it's doubt is something to be ashamed of. Um, I, I would say it's not something to be celebrated at all. I kind of uh, liken it to a house guest. A house guest can come over to your house. They shake things up for a while. It makes things different, but then they're meant to leave and move on. And uh, they're not meant to set up permanent residence in your home. So a lot of people today in today's culture, they celebrate doubt and they think it's a great thing. Um, I say it's, it's, it's an inevitable thing that you will doubt in some form or fashion, but it's not ever meant to be something that's celebrated uh, rejoiced in, in the way that Rob Bell did so many years ago, and that led him there in the way, you know, that a number of other Christian leaders have done and led them down paths that have been uh, tragic, in my opinion. That sounds like a unique book. Yeah. I love the, the illustration of the house guest that can stay, but can't stay forever. You know, Uncle Jesse can't stay upstairs forever. <laughs> stick around watching Battlestar Galactica every night. 
at some point he's <laughs> got to go home. Uh, you know, I actually, as you were describing the book, Shelby, I thought to myself, uh, cause frankly, to be honest, I wasn't really sure what the book was. I just was like, Oh, Shelby's got a book out. We're having him on the podcast. I'm buying the book. Yeah. And the idea, I, I, I mean, as a pastor in a small college town, uh, which I would say this is, this, this is not just college students, right? I mean, this is, but, but there is, no, I, mean, I mean, I primarily wrote it for a younger audience, but everything in here is, is completely applicable to, to anyone in, in any level on the Christian faith. Right. I'm having conversations with 40 somethings and 50 somethings and 70 somethings who are, who are really actually going, man, they've been ashamed of their doubt. Well, they've been afraid of their doubt. And, uh, you know, I, Often we'll talk about the man that says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that th- this is a kind of model for us to bring our doubt, not just not to hide our doubt, but to bring our doubt to Jesus and ask him for, you know, we have some faith, but man, help me have more faith. Help me, you know, help my unbelief. So I'm, I'm excited to get this book. Yeah. I'm excited to give it out. Yeah. Good. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, I am clearly not in, in writing for the money because that's a, I don't make any money off of this, but I mean, I do, but I have to put it into my staff account anyway. So it's not like I'm lining my pockets, but, uh, it's, I'm, I'm, I am very passionate about having an influence and when, uh, the validity, I'll never forget it yet. In fact, when, when Link said in his deconstruction story, he said, when I came to the point when I realized that Jesus probably didn't rise from the grave and I was like, whoa, that is the most insulting thing that I think I've ever heard out of the lips of someone. It's like, if you are saying that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, you are like them, them's fighting words. And so that came along right around the same time that I was editing. I had written the book about a year before the whole Rhett and Link thing happened, but this, it did nothing but galvanize kind of what I wanted to do, what I wanted to say that like, Hey, there are, there are, fantastic arguments for the validity of Christianity. They're out there. You just got to be willing to do the research. And I found that laziness is often a, a factor with a lot of young people. They go to, they go to a, a, a class and they hear the professor say a bunch of stuff and they go, well, they're, they're basically more educated than I am. So I guess that's true. Mm. Or they start doubting. And I'm like, Hey, if you really care about this, this is the most important thing in all of eternity. Do the work, like read, get into it. Like, Surround yourself with believers. Fight when God seems absent. It's no. It's not really a stiff arm from heaven. It's rather an invitation for you to go deeper mm. into your experience with God. And doubts can make you much stronger if you deal with them in the appropriate way. And so that's essentially what the book is about: is dealing with things in the appropriate way and watching God show up in ways that you never thought He would. Mm. Good. We will link to that in the show notes. I encourage you to pick up a copy. Uh, and before we move, Shelby, to our lightning round, would you give us a little bit of a sneak peek into your vocational habits? Specifically, love to know your your reading and writing habits. What do you do when you go to write? Are you are you like a getaway for a week and you just write it all out? Or are you writing in the morning? Tell us a little bit about that and your reading habits. Paul Tripp actually told me, um, you know, the season of life that you're in, it's almost impossible to be able to get away because you've got two small kids. And um, so while I have done that before, for short stints of like two days, Paul recommended that I try to write every day if I can, if only for like 20 minutes. Now, that's not been able to work out the way I want it to, but I do try to write often. And that way, even if you're writing and it's garbage, 
you can trash it and it was only 20 minutes of time. And so I try to write consistently. COVID has really changed a lot of stuff uh, because I was working out of my basement for so long and that was better in some ways, but it was also more difficult when you hear your kids running around upstairs. Um, so uh, I've tried to just be diligent with going after writing about what I'm learning in the process and um, uh, asking the Holy Spirit to give me direction there. Reading wise, I'm usually always reading probably one or two books at the same time. Right now, I decided to dive back into Mere Christianity because I haven't read that in like 10 years. And um, I'm reading Rebecca McLaughlin's mm. Confronting Christianity at the same time. Mm. And uh, she is very gifted. I had the pleasure of meeting her briefly at uh, the TGC conference last year. And um, she's uh, she, she addresses a lot of the issues that people in culture today have problems with Christianity. And so um, those are the two books I'm reading right now. I want to read... Uh, I, I gifted my wife uh, for Mother's Day, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And um, I'm like, are you done with it yet? Are you done with it yet? <laughs> I want to read it. <laughs> so I gave it to her as a gift. But I've been hearing that is one of the best Christian books that's ever been written in the last decade. So I'm super excited to get into that one when 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 Rachel's done. That's excellent. That's excellent. Uh, have you read that yet? I haven't, but neither have I. It's it's everybody going keeps around, telling yeah. everybody keeps telling us the same thing about gentle and lowly. Excellent. Now let's do the lightning round. Okay, here's what we do for the lightning round, Shelby. Is we're going to ask you a question, and just without just bam, without even thinking, just what would be your answer? So we'll make these quick. We'll work through a bunch. If you could write one book, your next book, and it was guaranteed to sell, what would you write? Um, I have written my next book. <laughs> And it's with the publishers right now to see whether or not they will. Um, but it's about the authority issue that people have today and how they reject authority, yet they submit to the authority of places like Google all the time without questioning it. And so um, I really dive into uh, the miraculous nature of um, believing and being a Christian, how that Basically, there's no such thing as deconstruction, spiritual deconstruction, because if you believe that it's a miracle that you've been saved, that it's by grace, God doesn't undo miracles. Amen. Um, so that, that touches on that. So leaning and bowing the knee to the authority of Jesus Christ, that would be, I would, it's a gospel. So I want mm. that to do well. All right. Look forward to it. Hope the publisher picks it up. Yeah, ask the next one. All right, Shelby. What is the book that you've given most as a gift? And and it can be your own. Uh, it is my own. <laughs> uh, I wrote a book a few years ago called I Am a Tool to Help with Your Dating Life. And my audience uh, wrestles a lot with how to deal with romantic relationships in the modern age with social media and texting and all that kind of stuff. And so I really felt like I had a lot to say there. And so I've given that book out probably the most. That's a ministry tool, though, that was produced by Crew, So it's easy for me to give it out. Um, but yeah, that's probably the one I've given the most. Sorry if that's smug. Every, every, every published writer has said their own book. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay. We assume you drive around with like a suitcase full of them in the trunk. So it's totally fine. <laughs> what is something under $100 that every writer should own? Um, I'd say this is not going to, I'd say a lightweight jacket. <laughs> <laughs> For 
when you get chilly. I've, I've found that when I'm cold, it's difficult for me to concentrate. And so even as we went into the COVID time in spring and summer, I would go down into my musty, unfinished basement and I'd have to take a jacket with me or like a cardigan. And that's under $100. And it helps me be comfortable so I can focus on my words. You, you really are <laughs> into shoes and jackets. That's a great answer. So the answer might be the same for the next one. What's something under $100 that every college student should own? A lightweight jacket? Um, every college student should own... No, I would say every college student should own Making Sense of God by Tim Keller. Mm. Uh, I think at least could, every Christian college student. I think you could own that and a lightweight jacket for under $100. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. That's a good point. So both. Hey, let me ask just a couple more questions. How do you get unstuck on a project? What kind of tricks do you use? Um, yeah, kind of common ones. I usually get up away from my computer and walk around, even if I just take a lap around my house or a lap around the building and yeah, put put on my jacket, walk outside. Uh, but I, I found that as I'm walking, I can focus on the way I want to word something in a way that I may be stuck at if I'm just sitting down. So yeah, taking breaks is really valuable. It does help. Excellent. Again, a common theme. Last question. What advice do you have for a next generation person, maybe especially a college student who is just coming back uh, and it's still... COVID-19, things are super weird in life. They're wearing masks and maybe they're they're not sure if they're going to have classes in three weeks. What kind of advice do you have uh, for a college student, student right now in the age of COVID-19? Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's normal to feel weird. It's normal to feel a little bit angry and sad about this. And um, my advice would be to not... Uh, shake your fist at God or blame God uh, when, think, when you don't understand things, but to really say, hey, I'm, I'm emotional about this. I'm sad about this. I'm angry about this, but ultimately uh, I'm going to stick. And I know that you maybe have reasons for this that I cannot see as a limited, finite human being. And so I'm going to submit to the fact that you know what you're doing when it seems like nobody in the world knows what they're doing. Um, especially as we approach November too, when it feels like this is just, everything is just awful right now. Uh, but God still knows what he's doing. Even when things seem like complete chaos and out of control, are we going back to school? Will we be, will we be there in the spring semester? At least we don't know those things, but God knows. And behind our big God is a God of love. Good. Amen. Thank you. Shelby Abbott for joining us here on episode 18 of the Hammer and Quill. Love you, bro. Give my love to Rachel. Follow Shelby on Twitter. Follow him on Instagram for pictures of his children. And <laughs> tune in next, next time as we interview our friend Christine Gillette about founding Freedom 424, which is a ministry devoted to combating sex trafficking. She did that as a college student. We're going to hear all about that. Please subscribe. Review us on iTunes. Throw some five-star reviews our way. Until next time, peace. Peace.